This is the Late Round Podcast with your host, JJ Zacharisa. What's up, everyone? It's JJ Zacharyson, the editor-in-chief at FanDuel and at NumberFire.com, and this is episode 270 of the Late Round Podcast, one of the many shows that are part of the FanDuel Podcast Network. Thanks for tuning in. There are a ton of running back by committees in the NFL, tons of them, and as a result, the idea of handcuffing has kind of become irrelevant in fantasy football. Like, Matt Breida isn't a handcuff to Tevin Coleman. Matt Breida himself has standalone value. To me, and this may change depending on who you ask, but to me, a handcuff is a running back who's a backup and doesn't have much value unless an injury occurs. That's how I defined a handcuff when I did a big study on the topic a couple of years ago. They were backup running backs taken later in drafts who were backups to top 12 picks. Otherwise, they were basically part of a committee. Now, with this movement to committees, there's been a lot of talk about capturing backfields when you're drafting in fantasy football. And it's not even always committee-driven either. Todd Gurley is someone who people seem to believe that if you draft him, then you need to get Daryl Henderson too. You need to spend a mid-round pick on Henderson if you get Todd Gurley. And I couldn't disagree with that more. I do think the Ezekiel Elliott and Melvin Gordon situations are a little bit different because you at least know that if they miss time, they're missing time at the start of the year. So you can just slot in a Tony Pollard or an Austin Eckler in your running back slot and cross your fingers that they produce. But I'd also argue that if you're feeling that worried about Ezekiel Elliott that you reach really, really far for Tony Pollard, then you probably shouldn't be drafting him fourth overall. But that's a slightly different discussion. Here's my issue with the Gurley and Henderson example specifically. I understand the logic behind it but I highly doubt it's ever going to be super clean. As in, we don't know if Todd Gurley's lowered workload means that he'll miss entire games or that he'll not see as many touches in a single game. If he misses entire games, then sure, having Henderson might be helpful. But I'd also argue that if he misses entire games and you're worried about that to the point where you're drafting Daryl Henderson earlier because you want to lock up that backfield in some way, then you shouldn't be taking Todd Gurley with a top two round pick anyway. You should just draft Daryl Henderson. But we could also run into what I'm most worried about with Todd Gurley, and that's just unpredictable volume. If you have both of these players and their volumes start to become unpredictable, then you're just inviting a mess to your fantasy football team. Maybe another example will help. I got a question from someone asking if they should draft both Chris Carson and Rashad Penny, since Penny would have flex appeal but also a lot of upside if something were to happen to Chris Carson. I mean, sure, maybe Penny's going to have flex appeal, but he has no appeal in the flex when you've got Chris Carson in your lineup. Like, you know that you're not going to play both of those guys together. So you're essentially just drafting Penny as a handcuff to Chris Carson. Now, you might be saying the same thing that any person who likes handcuffing says. Okay, JJ, but what happens if an injury does occur? Well, what happens if an injury occurs to Philip Lindsay and you drafted Royce Freeman in round 8 instead of Rashad Penny in round 7? What happens if Alvin Kamara goes down and you drafted Latavius Murray instead of Rashad Penny? In those scenarios, you're getting an upgrade at running back, and then you already have a strong running back in Chris Carson. In a scenario where you went with both Chris Carson and Rashad Penny, if Carson goes down or Penny goes down, you're just upgrading one spot in your lineup. We've got to get this scared way of playing fantasy football out of our heads, because that scared way has a cost associated with it. You're holding a roster spot for someone who won't ever have a spot in your starting lineup. You're just waiting for an injury to occur when that injury might not ever occur. This is why I generally say if you're handcuffing a running back, go with a running back that's not on your roster. Get Chase Edmonds if you don't have David Johnson. If David Johnson gets hurt, you've all of a sudden got a potential starter who is sitting on your bench. 
It's not like your running back that you drafted in the first round has any more or less chance to get hurt in most cases than anyone else's running back. Just because the player is on your team doesn't change the likelihood that he gets hurt. I generally don't handcuff unless it's a deeper league. If you're in a league with 15 or 16 players rostered, handcuffing shouldn't really happen in the traditional sense. But this whole idea of locking up backfields is really backwards to me. A lot of times, if an injury happens or something changes, backfields just become split, which means you're really capping your upside. But then on top of that, even if there are two productive running backs in that backfield, like Chris Carson and Rashad Penny, it's very rare for you to be starting or wanting to start both of those running backs each week. So don't get Naheem Hines if you get Marlon Mack. We already have some idea of what would happen to Naheem Hines if Marlon Mack got hurt. We know the upside isn't that great. Don't feel this urge to get Deion Lewis if you have Derrick Henry. Just draft those players as standalone values. Like, I love Deion Lewis this year. I think Deion Lewis is a great pick. I don't get him only if I get Derrick Henry. It's a really low ceiling way of playing when your goal is to have a powerhouse first place team. Before getting to the mailbag questions this week, I wanted to send another reminder to check out the Numberfire Draft Kit before your fantasy football drafts. In it, you'll have access to expert rankings, including my rankings, but then there are auction values from the Numberfire algorithm, defensive matchup data, and so much more. And you can customize the Draft Kit to fit your league settings to make sure you're getting the most accurate projections and rankings possible. Late round podcast listeners can use promo code CHAMPION to get your first month of premium for just $9.99. Again, that's promo code CHAMPION. Start your journey to a fantasy football championship today. This first question is from at AW26281. Are you fading James White for the same reasons mentioned in Players to Avoid as Tariq Cohen? This is a really fair and good question because James White also saw a lot of his production last season come as a receiver, and that's something that historically has regressed for running backs year over year, at least running backs who finished as top running backs the previous season. That's what I talked about in the podcast that you referenced on Players to Avoid, which you can listen to if you just skip back a few episodes in the podcast feed. I don't necessarily think that James White is overrated, but I think people are fooling themselves if they think he has the same kind of ceiling that he showed during the front half of the 2018 season. White had some unsustainable touchdown production to kick off last year. Through the first seven games, he had six receiving touchdowns. He had one receiving touchdown throughout the rest of the season, including the playoffs. Meanwhile, he had five total rushing touchdowns last season, and three of those came in games where Sony Michelle was sidelined. And two of those touchdowns came from the one, with the other one coming from the eight. That's Sony Michelle's area of the field when he's healthy. Sony Michelle would get those touches. So can James White provide some sort of floor in PPR formats this year? Sure. But I think you have to at least have some worry about what the ceiling looks like with Sony Michelle in the mix, and with Sony Michelle reportedly doing more receiving work at camp. And then they also drafted Damian Harris. I like White more than Cohen because we've got a history of New England really utilizing and targeting their running backs out of the backfield. He's got a more sustainable target share, but he's in a position more where he can just reach his ADP, but likely not far exceed it without some sort of injury. This next question is from at live love fantasy. At what point do you consider strength of schedule and drafting players? I consider everything and that includes strength of schedule. I just don't look at strength of schedule from the perspective of this is how many fantasy points this team gave up to wide receivers last year, because those types of numbers aren't very sticky. I'd rather look at it from the perspective of game floor, even utilizing different websites, front seven and secondary rankings like pro football focus, where there's some sort of process where they're not just ranking based on what happened last year. And when I talk about game flow, I'm talking about projected win totals. 
You can go to FanDuel Sportsbook and look at all the win totals for every NFL team and then match that to their schedule. And you can see which teams have strong strength of schedules and weak strength of schedules. So strength of schedule matters to some degree for me. It won't move the needle a ton because situation and player talent matters a lot more, but it's not something that I just ignore. This next question is from at time to pivot. Hey, JJ, love the show. You don't have to say thanks. Thanks. I keep hearing a lot of analysts say, I'll go zero RB or wide receiver heavy if I pick towards the end of the round. But based on just previous year's data with Bell, DJ, and Fournette, doesn't it make sense to draft wide receiver regardless of spot? So I think there's a misunderstanding between bust rates and expected value when it comes to fantasy football. Bust rates are more binary in that they say this player worked out or this player didn't work out. And from that perspective, wide receivers are the safer pick. But expected value is a little bit different. It says, here's how many points we can expect from this player at this ADP, given how players at his position have performed historically. And when you think of things that way, the difference between a running back and a wide receiver narrows a bit. From my research, the edge still goes to wide receivers, but it's a lot closer than looking at it in that binary bust rate way. Now, I would take this a step further and say that elite running backs, if you have an elite running back, those are the most valuable players in fantasy football. They give you the biggest edge at a position that's in high demand. So if you can get one, then you're in great shape. If you had Todd Gurley last year, congratulations. And over the last decade plus, those elite running backs are almost always found in the early rounds. You have to spend money to make money. That's how these running backs work. But this is also a big reason why if I'm in a position to get a running back who's projected to be a truly elite player, a true difference maker, I'll take him and then I'll generally go wide receiver heavy after that if it's in a full PPR format where I'm starting plenty of wide receivers. The problem with drafts this year is that it's hard to feel confident about those true difference makers outside of maybe three, four, or five running backs. And you get those players at the top of your draft. I'm talking about Saquon Barkley, Alvin Kamara, Christian McCaffrey. If your plan is to go wide receiver heavy after getting someone like Alvin Kamara, you run the risk of there being a big drop in tier after like Mike Evans gets picked in the second round. So you're almost forced to go running back with one of your next picks. So it's a tough season. It's a tough season to sort of mix and match different running backs and wide receivers in the early rounds. This season is really easy to sell a running back heavy draft if you're in the front half of drafts and a wide receiver heavy draft if you're in the back half. But I wouldn't just look at last year's bust rates and say, this is why you don't go running back early. There's a lot more depth to that type of analysis. This next one's from at Pawnee or bust. What offenses do you want pieces of this season? What offenses are you avoiding? Thanks, JJ. You're the man. Hey, thanks. So I think we all want similar offenses. Like we want a piece of the Browns, a piece of the Packers, a piece of the Saints, a piece of the Chiefs. We want those good offenses that we know are likely to be good. A lower key one that I've been targeting is San Francisco, despite Jimmy Garoppolo looking not so great so far in the preseason. We know the system is good and the prices for those players outside of George Kittle are very, very fair. People keep saying that offense is going to be a mess distribution wise. And maybe that's true, but it's not like you're paying a huge premium on those guys outside of George Kittle. All of those guys are pretty cheap. Kyle Shanahan put together a very competent offense last year with Nick Mullins as his quarterback and the running backs ranked fifth in yards from scrimmage. It's a worthy value offense, in my opinion, knowing that things can go south, but that's why these guys are priced the way that they're priced. And Arizona is another offense that I'm buying. I'm not all that concerned with the way that the first team offense has looked in the preseason because it's highly unlikely that this is the type of pace they're going to play at. I've talked about them all offseason, 
but there should be lots of volume there, and it means that Larry Fitzgerald, Christian Kirk, and potentially another wideout are going to be fantasy relevant. They're worth drafting given their cost. Carolina's another offense who I think is a little bit lower key, and then there's Tampa Bay. I mean, Tampa Bay is going to likely support two really good wide receivers and potentially an elite tight end. You have to like what that offense could look like with Bruce Arians there. On the other side of things, I just don't want to deal with players from Washington or Miami for the most part. The ceiling just doesn't seem to be there. Now, Darius Geis' price has dropped enough to where I'm comfortable taking him now because of the potential of him as a player. And I love, love Jordan Reed's price given his potential volume in that offense. But outside of those two players, I just really don't want to rely on players in either of those offenses. This next question is from at Jimmy Clausen 4. Favorite dart throw? Madison, Justice Hill, Damian Harris, Darwin Thompson? Thanks. Yeah, so actually Justice Hill and Darwin Thompson are my go-tos this year. I've been on Hill pretty much since he was drafted, so you guys know where I stand there. And with Thompson, he's just kind of grown on me. He's looked good in the preseason, and I think his style of play fits in Andy Reid's scheme. Like I said earlier this week, I don't think Damian Williams just straight up loses his job without an injury, but Thompson is a really good risk-reward pick given his ADP right now. So I like those two the most, I think. But I'm sure that you can find other players that I like late by listening to some of the podcasts that I've done over the last couple of months. This next question says, This year I've joined a few typical redraft leagues after many seasons of strictly playing Dynasty. After several mock drafts, I'm having a hard time accepting when to jump ship on the ADP best player available strategy. Rounds 1-6 to go chalk, but in round 7, my Dynasty alarm goes off and I start reaching for my guys. Am I overdrafting too early at this point? Leaving solid roster depth potential on the board? When is an appropriate time to load up on the upside players I prefer, regardless of rankings or ADP? Honestly, it just depends who you're reaching for and whether or not it makes sense. If you're grabbing running backs and wide receivers that you like and fear that they won't be there the following round, that's totally acceptable. That's exactly when you should reach. Sometimes it looks bad to do that if you're drafting at the turn, because you have to wait so long before that next pick, but that's why you're reaching. You're ensuring that you're getting that player. Now, once round five or six hits, things really take a nosedive, historically speaking. There's not a ton of difference in expected value between guys being drafted there and players going in rounds eight or nine. So it's fine if you want to reach there a little bit. Just don't be the person who's drafting David Montgomery in the first round when you know that you don't need to get him there. And remember, if someone else gets your guy, that's okay there's still a chance, and oftentimes a good chance, that the player just won't work out anyway. So I'd say maybe through round four, play it a little bit safe. But it all depends on who you're talking about here and how far you're reaching. This next question says, I'm picking no later than second in my three drafts. Are you okay with taking the same guy in all three drafts? I mean, in an ideal world, I'd differentiate between those two guys, like Christian McCaffrey and Alvin Kamara. The early rounds have such a big opportunity cost, and I'm sorry for always using that word, but it's a very important word in fantasy football drafts. But the early rounds have such a big opportunity cost that if something happens to that one guy that you keep drafting, it can really hurt your teams. And considering the outlooks for Kamara and McCaffrey are fairly similar, there's no reason to just pick one of the two over and over again unless your risk tolerance is really high. But the fewer leagues you're in, the less important for differentiation. And if you're only in one league, I'd probably be more inclined to reach a little bit more to ensure I'm grabbing the players that my research says are undervalued or players who I just really want. Because fantasy football is meant to be fun, you guys. Though I can't imagine just playing in one league because I'm such a degenerate for this stuff. This last question is from at Chris Nowak 87. 
How do you approach a PPR league that starts two quarterbacks, two wide receivers, one running back, and five flexes? I'm lost. To be honest, leagues with a lot of flex spots are easier to draft in. Because instead of having to compare across positions, you're now just comparing the raw fantasy points from one player to the next. The first thing that you want to look at, though, with any league is supply and demand. What are your roster restrictions? And how does that differ from the typical league that you're used to drafting in? In this league, you're starting two quarterbacks, so you know that quarterback will go earlier than usual. You're starting one fewer wide receiver, or maybe the typical number of wide receivers with just two, but you're also starting just one running back. Since this is a PPR format, wide receivers are going to give you more consistent production in those flex spots. And honestly, it makes it easier to draft wide receivers in this case because your roster dictates that you need two of them versus one running back. And all the while, since you're not starting a tight end, you can mostly ignore the position unless a value presents itself. So really, in this case, you can probably mostly punt running back, go crazy with wide receivers, and be reactive to your quarterback picks. You can listen to my Superflex podcast, which is episode 139, to get a better idea of how to approach the position when you draft. But in a league like this, you definitely should be grabbing as many top wide receivers as you can. That's it for today's show, though. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you've yet to subscribe to the Late Round Podcast, make sure you are pretty much anywhere podcasts can be found. You can also follow me on Twitter, at LateRoundQB. Thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of the week.